0: Our gospel reading today comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. So listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church today. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. Thanks be to God. What can we do? It was the question that came from the other end of the line from a couple of clergy friends who knew how to ask good questions in these situations. I knew that one well. Different from, is there anything we can do, what can we do is more demanding. It expects and insists on specificity in one's response. What can we do, they asked. You can take down my Christmas tree, I said. An answer that surprised me as it emerged from the pit of my stomach but the right one. Done, they said. Exactly three years ago today, this was the conversation that I was having over the phone from my mother-in-law's house in Birmingham, Alabama. The friends were here in Memphis, a place that my husband and I had left in haste several hours before when we received a panicked call from my mother-in-law telling us that Bill, my husband's father and my father-in-law, was in cardiac arrest. Not 20 minutes after that call, when we were on the road somewhere in North Mississippi, we got another call, this one with the news that Bill had passed. Without anything else to do but grieve, we continued on our way, even though I was just about 38 weeks pregnant. One of the few things that we had grabbed as we had rushed out of the house was the hospital bag that I had packed the week before and placed by the door. That night, after we had said our goodbyes at Bill's hospital bedside and made that most awful and courageous walk out of his room... I sat upstairs in my husband's childhood home feeling the tap, tap, tap from the baby's fingers inside my belly. And I talked to these friends who were asking me, What can we do? I've thought about that gut response that I gave three years ago. Such an odd thing to request. And frankly, no small thing, (laughs) it's a chore. Part of it was certainly anxiety relief. I didn't know when we would be home. The tree was exceedingly dry, and given what had transpired over the last six hours, I was not trusting the universe especially well. But the other part was less exact. It had something to do with anticipating that walk through our front door the return home, and needing the physical space to reflect a return to the very real world, and the way in which our lives had been dramatically and irrevocably changed. It was most definitely not Christmas anymore. The tree had to go. That rather sharp pivot Away from Christmas is felt by many in the week following the big day, with or without major life events. And it's a pivot that perhaps providentially is captured in the gospel according to Matthew, when the simple birth story, captured in a single sentence, is followed immediately by a much longer narrative of which we read only a part of today. The longer narrative includes the story of what happened after the Magi left the house. In a dream, Joseph is warned by an angel to take the child and his mother and to flee to Egypt, escaping Herod's wrath. It was a wrath that ultimately fell upon the toddler and infant boys of Bethlehem who were two years old and younger, and their wailing mothers. Just a week after the most beloved celebration of the year, the events we remember today are a sobering reminder of the threat that Christ posed then and now. Matthew doesn't let us linger in Christmas for very long. This is the child, after all, who will grow up to drive out the money changers from the temple and eat with outcasts and talk to women and pray for enemies and demand loyalty to God over wealth. This was the baby who would grow up to suggest Caesar isn't God and that Israel's leaders aren't infallible. Herod's jealousy, Herod's rejection, Herod's fury in the face of Christ, was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Of course, Herod's rejection and lust for power is contrasted with the magi, astrologers, not kings, led as they were to Jesus by curiosity, by wonder, by openness, and led away as they were by an epiphany, and by love. Part of epiphany is revelation. And when we consider all that can be revealed, it's clear that there's a wide spectrum. On the one hand, there is revelation of information, both good and bad. The diagnosis, the infidelity, the promotion, the firing. And on the other, the revelation of God's very self, The ways that God has revealed God's self throughout and beyond time. In nature, in beauty, in scripture, in the word made flesh. At Epiphany, that is what we remember. The revelation of God in Christ. The revelation of the eternal word of God made flesh in the babe at Bethlehem. But epiphany suggests more than revelation. It suggests revelation received. The dictionary honors this tension when it defines epiphany as both an appearance or a manifestation, especially of a deity, and also a sudden intuitive perception of or insight into the reality or essential meaning of something, usually initiated by some simple, homely, or commonplace occurrence or experience. We are told that when the Magi arrived at the house where Jesus lay, despite having gone searching for him, they were overwhelmed with joy. They had a sudden intuitive perception. We needn't force a confession upon them. They probably wouldn't have recognized this child as God's preexistent word made flesh. Those confessions would be made much later by a church looking in hindsight. But the text suggests that the magi, these outsiders, recognized something, and they were changed by this encounter. Alluding to the posture they took when they followed the star to its resting place, Leo the Great wrote of their willingness to be led by the splendor of grace. The epiphany of the Lord is the day that Christians mark the revelation of God's manifestation in Jesus Christ, and the day that we remember some of our first spiritual ancestors, people just like us, who were searching for meaning and for hope in the dark and found it. Though we mark Epiphany today, on the Sunday closest to it, January 6th is the official feast day, On January 6th, three years ago, my husband and I welcomed our son, Nicholas, our firstborn, into the world, two days after the onset of labor on January 4th, and four days after losing Bill on January 2nd. Nicholas was, and he is, our epiphany baby, a revelation without a doubt of the gift of life and the limits of death's power. So what will be revealed on January 6th of this year? I have a friend who will meet with an oncologist that day. The extent of cancer's presence will be revealed. Americans will look back on what happened at our capital just one year ago today. They will reflect. The unhealed wound of our nation will be revealed. In homes and doctor's offices and boardrooms all over the world, there will be revelations of broken trust and mortal bodies and jobs lost. Surely, without knowing the details, January 6th of this year will reveal a very real world and where we find ourselves in it. If it isn't already, it will be clear that Christmas has passed. But something else will be revealed as well. The gift born to us Christmas night is here to stay. The light that dawned in Christ's coming cannot be extinguished. God is here, right here we who allow ourselves to be led by the splendor of grace will find ourselves kneeling. And we will find ourselves traveling home by another road, a road of courage, of strength, of hope, of peace, of joy, and of love. In the name of our triune God, alleluia and amen.